So this series, we've got the idea of this building project that we're working at. We've talked again and again over the months and years about the desire to maintain and grow and to build the ministry team in the church. We are, in a sense, looking to keep on traveling, aren't we? We want to keep on moving. We don't want to stagnate. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so important, so significant, that at least where we are in this little location, which in relative terms to global significance is insignificant, and yet it's significant to us because this is where God has called us to. But the issue is this. How do we keep traveling? How do we keep moving forward without moving? What does that without moving mean? How do we keep moving forward in the 21st century when the thing that we want to keep stable on is a Bible that was written 2,000 years ago? How do we keep moving yet, yet, how do we keep traveling without moving, without that sense of stepping away from an inheritance which is ours? I would love... I would love to sit next to Peter or Paul or James. Some of those, well, maybe one day we will have that opportunity to sit next to them and talk about what church was like for them in those first few years. Or maybe some of the great heroes of the Christian faith, Athanasius, Augustine, Calvin, people who have experienced church down through the centuries, down through the millennia, and then to say, do you know what our little gathering was like? How, How different? And yet what is critical to us is that that difference, am I fading, or is it my voice that's fading, or am I fading? I'll try not to move. Do we want to move to this? No, we're good. Okay. Uh, How do we keep that sense of historical connectedness rooted in this Bible? And yet now, 21st century, there are so many things that we have to deal with, which historically we have never had to deal with. And then remember that we we are not unique in that sense. They were dealing with things which were unique for them. I was reading in this past week, the challenge that both Luther and Calvin had with the whole um, theory of Galileo and Copernicus, Copernicus primarily, this idea that actually the world was not at the center of the universe. It was a real struggle for them. The Bible, from their, for their point of view, was being undermined. How can I trust this Bible when these guys are coming along and saying this strange new idea. Uh, and do we, are we troubled by the idea that the word, maybe if there's any flat earthers in the congregation, um, we'll chat later. I know some great websites. Um, are we troubled by that idea now? No, we're not, are we? We know that when the Bible says that the earth is at the center at the heart and everything moves around it, the real intent of that, the real purpose of that is to say that there is a central care and concern that God has for what He has created. Yes, all of this, in fact, it's even more amazing, isn't it? 
we are tiny and insignificant, and yet the Son of the living God came here. Isn't that amazing? That's, that's just a mind-blowing thought. Maybe that's something that for you is something you've never really thought of. Who is this Jesus? The Bible says He's no less than God incarnate in human form come into this world. And then you say, but this world is what? A tiny little speck in the universe that we know of so far. And yet God came here. So we are continually dealing with challenges that, that make us question, make us rethink. So we want to keep traveling, but we do not want to be moving from this foundation, which is God's communication to us through His Word. So we're going we're gonna to deal this, this afternoon with, I think it's a really troubling chapter. I think it's a real heavy chapter. How do we come to terms today with this? Here's the story, if we can <clears throat> get it up and we can follow it on the screen. The basic story goes like this. There was husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. The Christian faith has, has emerged. Jesus has risen, and people who were fearful and terrified have now started to uh, meet together and to identify themselves as believers in Jesus. The church is on the move. The church is growing. What we are connected to has now started. Ananias and Sapphira, um, in order to help to build and nurture the church, like, like, like we are all called to do, not just to nurture the, the church in theory, but to nurture the church in practice, what do they do? They go and they sell a field and they bring the money, and they put it, it says, at the apostles' feet. What does that mean? It might have been that in the culture of the day, they literally did put it at the apostles' feet. But in cultural terms, what they were doing was that they were saying, this is now for you to use. I have no claim on it anymore. I am I'm giving it to you. <clears throat> it is under your feet now not under my feet, not under my control. You do, it in, do with it in whatever way you choose to do. <clears throat> Peter turns to him. He says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you've received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied just to human beings, but to God. And in that instant, Ananias drops down dead. That is, that is hard for us to hear. I think there's a little cameo into the ancient world. Three hours later, his wife came in, and she didn't know anything about it. <laughs> Do you know what? What a difference in the communication that we live in today. Within seconds, there would have been a WhatsApp or a, tw or a text or whatever or a phone call. You've got to come here. You've just lost your husband. He has died. He's been taken out straight away, according to the custom, buried very quickly. 
after that. She comes in. Peter says, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, that's the price. And Peter says, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, I mean, just imagine the last words you hear. Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And she's gone. Dead. I think these, this chapter is... When you actually try to place yourself in that little group of people and hear what's going on, it is startling. It is breathtaking, isn't it? What is going on in the church at that particular time in history is amazing things are happening for good reason. One of the things that um, the Bible says, uh, I think it was Peter says, uh, sorry, Paul says this, uh, Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom. God's speaking in a way which those around in Jerusalem at that time will hear this. These are ma major, massive signs that are going on. Two people drop down dead. So we have to look at that and say, firstly, we have to say this. Coming to faith in Jesus, the idea of the Christian faith, the idea of a greater spiritual dimension, the idea of uh, hope in Christ, the idea of the reality of that hope impacting my life today, it is not a trivial matter. It's not something to play around with. That's at least one of those, the things that we see in this, isn't it? Faith in Christ is not a trivial matter. It's not something that we say, oh, yeah, actually, I've got uh, faith in Jesus, yeah, 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 and then I'll kind of go and do whatever, and it's this little compartment in my life, and it's, this is just this li tiny little bit. We live in a world at the moment where we are so freer to be able to do that. But that this text tells us it is not like that. So why did they drop down dead? First thing is this, we're going to see why they didn't. The problem is not that they held back a percentage. So what's happened, they've come in, they've, they've sold a field, and they've put it at the disciples' feet. They've been asked, is this the money that you got for the field? Yes, and they die. The fact that they didn't bring all the money is not the issue. Look at what Peter says. He says it's really clearly. How is it, Ananias, that you are so filled, your heart is so filled that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the Lord? Keeping the money wasn't the issue. He says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Yeah, the field belonged to me before it was sold. You're right. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Yes, it was at your disposal when it was money and when it was field. They're both yours. You could have brought half of that money and you could have sold, said, I've sold a field. Here's half of the money. 
It was yours to give in whatever proportion you determined to give it in. That is not the issue. God is not some kind of sort of uh, divine judge who demands that there's this absolute amount of money that you have to pay me. You've got to pay your dues. You've got to sell a field to make it enough. Sell a field. That's, see what I did there? Uh, you, you, you haven't got to sell a field to make up enough money to satisfy me. Because what I'm looking at is your heart. That's what's really at stake. It's not about the percentage being held back. It's about the dishonesty in what is being portrayed. I'll bring the amount of money, I'll set it at your feet, but I am very happy for you to think that it's everything. Wow. God is not a trivial thing. When I read that, I'll be honest with you, when I read that and I stretch that principle into the rest of my life, I realize that God has been very, very, very gracious with me. Because time and time again, I know that I have been dishonest before God. I know that I've portrayed something before Him which is not really the me that is. I know that, and I know that He knows that. Isn't that, isn't that a humbling thing? I don't want us to look at this and say, well, he was stupid Ananias and Sapphira, weren't they? I want us to look at this and think, wow, God is so gracious not to deal with me and to deal with us in ways which this is describing. The amount of the percentage being hold back, held back is not the issue. So what is the issue? Look at verse 1, it says this, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. When Acts was written by Luke, he didn't divide it up into chapters and books. It was one continuous document to be read as a flow. He divided it up linguistically rather than into chapters and verses. He used techniques to create pauses in the narrative. But right in verse 1 it says that this couple also sold a field. And it the very last verse of the previous chapter, which we didn't read, says this. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the disciples' feet. Two fields have been sold. Two chunks of money have been brought and placed at the disciples' feet. It would seem, the way the narrative is written, that Barnabas had already done this. 
and Ananias and Sapphira did it after Barnabas. But certainly what we know is that Barnabas, is, that's the, one of the first kind of the moments of the introduction of Barnabas into our story of the early church, we find that Barnabas is highly respected in this group of new believers. He's called the son of encouragement. He's that kind of character. He's recognized, he's valued, he's cherished. He's esteemed. People think well of him. And the way this is written, it seems to me, is Ananias and Sapphira, they look at that and they think, wow, I want that. I want status. I want to be seen. And so they do what Barnabas did, but they don't do it with the spirit of Barnabas. Barnabas sells his field, and the money means nothing to him in comparison to the work of the gospel. Ananias and Sapphira sell their field, and the money that they have in their hand suddenly means something to them in comparison to the work of the gospel. And so they, in that moment, decide, I've now got a huge chunk of money which I didn't have in cash beforehand, and it means more to me now than when it was a field, and I need to keep a hold of it. But I want that status as well. Do you know what? As we move forward as a church... One of the things that needs to be crushed in the church is the idea of status, the idea of glory, the idea of identity. Time and time and time again, down through the centuries, down through the last few years, tragically, again and again, we have seen that a desire for status wreaks havoc in the church at large. It is a killer. And what this story is saying is, status is such an issue, status is such a critical thing, that I will crush it. I will not allow it to happen. In this, in this kind of, these first few baby steps that the church is taking. Right at the very birth of the church, God says, I'm going to crush status. Now, please listen. Please listen as you move forward over the next millennia. Do we listen? History teaches us that we never learn from history. And we carry on doing the stuff that we should be terrified of. Being seen, being valued. You're going to hear it from me all over the place this year because I may be on a bit of a mission. I am desperately, desperately concerned about how we see and interpret our identity, our status, our value through all of our ways of connecting, social media being the primary one the breadth of social media. 
This speaks into our generation today. And it says, don't raise yourself up. Don't measure yourself through that. Don't see your identity as how high up the pecking order of friends and likes. Don't measure yourself against those other people. I kind of think, wow, what, what have we got to do? What have we got to look at to see that it is not about status? It's not about where we are in the hierarchy. It's about who we each are in Jesus. Who I am in Jesus means everything. Everything. It means that Ananias and Sapphira could have come into that room and they could have laid down half of the money at the disciples' feet. Half of the money. And they could have said, we've brought half of the money for the sake of the gospel. And that would have been valued. It would have been loved. It would have been accepted. And yet what we actually see is, I don't want to be the real me. I want to be like Barnabas. <laughs> I want to be valued and held high. It is a killer. It is a killer in communities. It is a killer in relationships. It is a killer when we start to elevate ourselves above Jesus. When we try to say that our hierarchical structures are more important. So what we see here is Jesus is willing to say, I will take the most dramatic of means to crush status. What is the outcome of that? Look at the way it unfolds. The impact on people around was dramatic. The Christian faith becomes the talk of the, of the locale. Everybody knows about this event. Everybody's heard about it. The apostles, uh, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Look at what it says. No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. That's how the wider community saw what had gone on. They saw this, and they were amazed by it, and they terrified by it. That's the outside perspective. The inside perspective is great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. When the Bible uses that word fear... I think what it's actually trying to convey is the sense of awe and reality. Not a sense of terror. Not a, if it was fear in that sense, people inside would have run away. <laughs> it's a fear which says, wow, this is serious stuff. This, this is bigger than anything else in life. It's bigger than what I'm doing tomorrow. It's bigger than what I'm doing over the next few years in my job or my career. Not that we ignore all of those things. But our engagement in our relationship with Jesus is that big. It's a fear, it's an awe, it's a wow. It's 
fearful in that sense. But see what happens. So in this moment, firstly, we see there is a crushing of the status. But secondly, we see the church becomes a visible one. I'll say that again. The church becomes a visible one. Look at what happens. They, they begin to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. That's part of the Temple Mount. Some of it, you can still see remnants of it even to this day. Surrounding the outer court, which the temple was the very center of, of activity, of community activity, the very center of, uh, of relationship, out in the, the outer court would, was surrounded by this huge colonnade, pillars and, and roof, which went right around the outer uh, bounds of the temple. Herod the Great had in, in, initiated the building work. And what we see is that the believers, they start to identify by gathering together, and rather than being individuals, they now start to be talked about as one. They become visible. They identify themselves with. That is an incredibly important principle that we see. We see that they are terrified, terrified, or rather, that things are going on which people are terrified of, but at the same time, they keep on gathering. They become this identifiable community. Here we are, group of people. We're not meeting in Solomon's colonnade. But it's exactly the same principle. The church, God's people, have to be visible as one. We have to be seen. We have to be identifiable. We have to move from the kind of individual mindset of 21st century thinking into the gathered together mindset of us as one. This is the beginning of the formation of the church. Where did they meet? They could have met anywhere. They could have met in somebody's house. In fact, they begin meeting in houses after this. Huge persecution erupts in Jerusalem. They're scattered everywhere. But at least while they're in Jerusalem, they are meeting in this one place. They are visible where stuff is going on where community is going on. I look at that and I think, wow, that is, that is just so simply transferable into our situation today. We're not building Solomon's colonnade, not by a long shot, but we want to be visible. We want to be part of. We want to be seen. We want to be a source of blessing which is what the church has always been when it's been functioning well. A source of blessing for those wide, wider communities. Look at what it says in verse 13. No one else joined, dared join them even though they were highly regarded 
by the people. They were thought well of. Here's, here's, here's a test for us. As we start to move forward, is one of our objectives that we want to be thought well of. Not because we're falling into the trap of the first danger of status, but we want to be thought well of because we elevate the message of the gospel of Jesus in such a way that it is appealing. Not sure whether people might say, I'm not sure whether I want a part of it, but there's something that is, it just draws me. We cannot do that as well in an individual way. We can do it individually. We've got to do it individually as in different ways. But what we do is we do it together. I, I often think, you know, there's some people who are just brilliant at some things when it comes to sharing the gospel. I wish it was like them. I wish it was like that person who can do this or do that, talk in that, and just relax and chat and build friends, build relationships. I wish it could be like that. It took me years and years to realize I do not need to beat myself up about that. Because by being part of this, their success is my success. Because we are one. We're seen as, as a single, as a corporate entity, as a being, as a gathering. God glories in His church in all of its different ways and means and activities and strengths in different situations. And, and we are seen corporately. He saves us individually and then He says, come and join this. Come and join my people. Because actually right at the head is my son. He's done everything. And you're now part of that success. So come and join it. Be part of it. Do you sometimes feel just insignificant? The church is the great antidote to insignificance. Because we're part of something. We're part of something which is great and wonderful and triumphant and glorious. And the God of heaven looks down at us and sees us through His Son, clothed in righteousness, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And He says, in recreating that perfect creation, He says, that's very good. That's how He sees us. I don't feel like that. But that's how we are. And, and gathered together as one, Effectively, metaphorically, gathering together under Solomon's colonnade as we do what we want to do in this unit is a way of us seeking to reenact Acts chapter 5 in 21st century Castleford. They were highly respected, but there's something very curious going on. There's a contradiction at the end. And it's a deliberate contradiction. Verse 13. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly, highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. 
Isn't that, isn't that a fascinating contradiction that Luke deliberately writes? He says, people look at it and they think, That's, that is scary stuff. That's real stuff going on over there. I don't want anything to do with it, but it's somehow it's drawing. And it's, somehow it's appealing. And it, I don't want anything to do with it. And then what happens? Then they believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. And then that changes everything because it no longer is frightening. It's beautiful. That's the change that takes place. When you're on the outside, it seems fearful. And then in Jesus, it becomes beautiful. And it becomes what I know I now need. More than anything. They did amazing things. People brought those who were ill into the streets, laid them on their beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some as, they pa as he passed by. Crowds gathered also around the town, around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of, all of them were healed. It was amazing. There was an incredible impact that was going on. Here's the thing. Is that what we should expect today? Well, well, I think at times, yes. At times, yes. I think these kind of things still go on in parts of the world at times in an incredible way, but I think that's not the point. The point is this. Is God active in that kind of way today, here, now? Yes. What are we fearful of? The reality is we are not fearful of illness in the way that first century people who were ill were fearful. All of those people who got healed, they died again. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an, eter it was an eternal solution in a different way, but in physical terms, it wasn't an eternal solution. But what they were terrified of was fixed and resolved. For the greater part, we are not fearful of illness. We are not terrified of the idea of an influenza epidemic. People will die. People have died. But in the ancient world, it was a, a terrifying thing. But we are scourged in exactly the same way. With things that we don't feel as if we can control. Emotional anxieties fears, depressions, self-identity concerns. We can't solve those kind of things. And yet, I believe and I would claim that the gospel of Jesus Christ can solve just those kind of things. Not that they'll go completely for some. But what will happen is in the midst of hopelessness, something bigger will emerge in our lives that transports us beyond what we are grappling with day to day. I spoke, was speaking in um, a church over in uh, Brighouse this morning, and, and it came to me right at the end, and it's come to me at the end again today. A real good friend of mine, he was, he was um, my best man, 
he was he was a great character. He was a, he was mad as a box of frogs. He, he was um, he loved Africa. Went on voluntary services overseas straight after university. Did a year of VSO. Tracked down right down from uh, North Africa, uh, Kenya, right the way down to South Africa. Got on a boat on a on a, um, a commercial freighter and, and got a berth back to the UK. For those of you who are old enough, he, he travelled through Rhodesia during the Civil War. Uh, was told by the Foreign Office not to go through it, so he walked through it. That was him. He went back to Africa when he qualified as an accountant. Uh, what he didn't know is that sometime during that period of time, he contracted melanoma, which appeared much later in his life. And the impact of the exposure to the sun in Africa finally took his life with skin cancer. He was, he was a real dear friend of mine. I would say that in lots of ways he had, he had all sorts of, he kind of probably had a rocky road with the life of church. But you know what? Right at the end, he said this. I do not know how anybody can go through this without Jesus Christ. That, that has stuck with me. I remember him saying those words. It doesn't mean that he's now got this cancer under control. It might not mean that he's got this anxiety under control or we've got this depression under control or we've got this self-identity issues under control or we've got these self-harm issues completely under control. It might not mean that we conquer them in that way, but it means that there is now something bigger than those things that takes us right through to the end and takes us across the line. And it says, ultimately, eternally, it is well with my soul. That's what was going on in Acts chapter 5. That's what we want to see happening in our congregation, in our gathering of people, so that we are just humbly, with no sense of self-identity, presenting this beautiful Jesus, who is the hope in life today, as much as he was then. There's the beginning of traveling without moving. Let's pray.